Welcome to another episode of the Bioinformatics Chat. I'm Jacob Schreiber, and I'm joined today by Dr. Lindsay Pino. Uh, Lindsay did her PhD at the University of Washington, and she's currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, advised by Dr. Benjamin Garcia. She's also the co-founder of an exciting new startup called Talos Bio. Lindsay, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Talos Bio is uh, a spin out of some of my work I did when I did my PhD at University of Washington. Um, I had this really fun collaboration with another guy that was doing his postdoc there, Alex Federation. Um, and we were using kind of each of our two skill sets. So he's really talented uh, a medicinal chemist um, and worked a lot in chromatin biology. I was more uh, doing uh, quantitative proteomics, which I think we'll be talking more about later. Um, so we combined uh, these two skill sets and came up with this really neat platform for measuring nuclear proteins live in cells. Um, and that kind of spun out into this, this drug discovery company, Talus. When you say live in cells, do you mean inside living cells or proteins as they are naturally uh, folded up? Yeah, so this is this is the idea that uh, transcription factors. There's all this talk, all this hype about intrinsically disordered proteins these days. Uh, transcription factors a lot of times are just like that. Um, they have some structure that lets them perform this function of of attaching and binding to DNA and turning transcription on or turning transcript transcription off. Um, but what a lot of drug uh, discovery assays are doing is they're taking a transcription factor out of the cell, putting it by itself in a test tube, and then trying to measure its activity. Um, so you can imagine now that protein is not in its native environment, um, so you're not really measuring how it interacts with a drug uh, as it would in a live cell. So what our platform does is, is let you measure that activity in a cell, in a nucleus, while the cell is still alive. Oh, that's really cool. It's like, for a lot of these assays that would measure things like transcription factor binding, that there's a dis distinction between in vivo and in vitro assays, where in vitro basically just take rent. It's like a microarray with random DNA, and they see where it binds, but it's not in a cell. And right. because, unfortunately, bio is complicated, you know. Yep. And and things like ChIP-seq, where you're using an antibody to pull out one specific transcription factor and then ask what DNA was it bound to, that's helpful. But then you have to one by one have an antibody pull it out, do the sequencing. Um, this is not telling you the sequence it's bound to. It's telling you all of the transcription factors and whether or not they were bound to DNA at the time that you were treating that cell with drug. So is it a measurement at each position along the genome, or is it just a binary, was this protein binding the DNA? It's binary in the sense that it's whether it was bound to DNA or not, um, but the actual measure of the protein is quantitative. Hmm. Um, so we can say this protein, there was twice as much protein bound to chromatin, or there was half as much protein bound to chromatin, not just a presence or absence. Oh, that's really cool. So this is being spun out into a drug discovery company in order to save us all from other pandemics. Yeah, yeah. And the idea we're, we're originally starting more in oncology um, because uh, transcription factors, you know, I, I'm sure especially for this audience, I don't need to convince you that they're really important, right? These molecular switches that are going to turn genes on and off. Um, but they're actually really hard to drug. Um, so there's very, very few drugs that are targeting transcription factors because it's so hard to study them in their actual native environment in a live cell. Um, 
And uh, I think like one of the classic examples of this is this drug thalidomide. Um, so back in like the 50s and 60s, there was this drug thalidomide. They were giving it to pregnant women for morning sickness. Um, and it turns out a very, very small chemical difference um, uh, in chirality of the drug can either cure your morning sickness, which is great, or it caused like really severe birth defects. Um, and they didn't know it's because the conformation of the small molecule will affect how it interacts with that transcription factor. So you're knocking the wrong transcription factors off of DNA. Um, so our platform hopes, uh, our platform aims to one, prevent that kind of thing from happening again, because you can measure all of the off-target effects of your drug, um, but two, more quickly find drugs that could specifically and sensitively um, knock transcription factors off of chromatin. That's pretty cool. So you used the term uh, a little bit ago, an intrinsically disordered protein. I think that many people would use that term in order to describe their life. But can you describe what that means in the context of a protein? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think all of us these days would describe our lives as intrinsically disordered. Um, that's the idea that proteins, when they fold, uh, they take on a tertiary structure. They take on a three-dimensional structure. And that structure gives them, at least in part, whatever their function is. Um, and that's kind of how we've always thought about protein structure function. It has a structure, and therefore it has a function. But what we've found... Um, recently, just kind of as a, as a broad scientific field, is that a lot of proteins don't actually have one set structure. Um, they, they have these floppy or flexible regions um, when we try to look at them uh, structurally. Uh, and those flexible regions are really important to allow the protein to conform to some new environment or to bind to some new uh, uh, interacting protein or interacting DNA sequences. So these regions that are floppier, is this intentional that it gives the protein more flexibility to do what it needs to do? Or is it basically like, this isn't something that evolutionarily has been, you know, tightened up. And if it does the wrong thing, that could be disastrous. That's a great question. I think that's kind of a philosophical question, too. <laughs> <laughs> Personifying these proteins um, for why they're so intrinsically disordered. I guess that's a rude question. You wouldn't go up to somebody and say, hey, why are you so intrinsically disordered? <laughs> That's going to be my new greeting after the pandemic. <laughs> I guess I meant for some proteins that are known to be intrinsically disordered, do they have multiple viable roles depending on their structure? Or is it that if they happen to fall outside their traditional role because they're intrinsically disordered, that they do something bad in the cell? You know, I think there's like probably a lot of answers to that question. I think part of it is the way we try to measure structure is not typically the same physiological conditions that the protein naturally exists. Um, so a lot of times we're trying to measure structure and we're trying to force a protein to form a crystal, which a lot of proteins are not happy about trying to form a crystal. So, okay, now you can't use X-ray crystallography. All right, so what about doing something like NMR to measure structure? Um, that also can have a lot of problems because the kind of solvents that you're using um, to put your protein in, maybe those also aren't really representative of, of what the protein is most happy existing in as far as when it's in a native cell. Um, so I think just as soon as you take a protein out of a cell, it's maybe no longer acting or looking the way it does when it's, you know, surrounded by all of its friends and in its <laughs> happy little cellular neighborhood. <laughs> Got it. So this is why the fact that your the, the work that you did looks at actual real cells is important versus when you take them out of the cell. But when you, in the previous um, 
way of doing things. You would take them out of the cell and measure them. But because they're intrinsically disordered, they might look different. And so looking in the cell is important because they'll maintain their natural conformation. Nailed it. Yep. Perfect. I feel so smart now. <laughs> so you also mentioned that this platform is quantitative, and that's been a central theme of your work. Can you describe what that means in the context of proteomics? Oh, man. Yeah. So really anything we're doing in biology is actually mostly going to try to be quantitative. Um, and I have a very strong philosophy around what is quantitative and what is not quantitative. So in proteomics, and I, spe I specifically do mass spectrometry proteomics, um, bottom-up mass spectrometry proteomics, um, we, we prepare proteins uh, uh, out of cells. Um, we, we digest them with trypsin, which is really just an, an enzyme that's going to chop up the protein into smaller peptides. And then we put those peptides into a mass spectrometer instrument. The mass spectrometer tells us, okay, this peptide was here, and here was the strength of the ion signal, the intensity of that particular peptide in the instrument. A lot of times we like to think, okay, if the intensity is high, there was a lot of peptide. If there was a lot of peptide, there's a lot of protein. But we're kind of jumping um, to a lot of conclusions there, right? Um, we're, we're assuming that intensity correlates with quantity, and we're, we're assuming that the mass spectrometer itself is inherently quantitative. And it's not mass spectrometry. No analytical instrument out there. There's not an instrument that exists that is itself inherently quantitative. Um, so a lot of my work is trying to come up with methods and techniques that will let you infer a quantity from a measurement that comes from an analytical instrument. Got it. So you're basically saying that uh, you have a sample and you want to know what proteins are in it. And so the traditional way is to use mass spec but the readouts from mass spec won't necessarily tell you the relative proportion. Right, right. Not necessarily. And really, no instrument that exists in the world will do that, right? It's just like your bathroom scale. Um, you can imagine you step on your bathroom scale and you're like, oh, I weigh like whatever, 200 pounds. Um, you step on it a month later and now it tells you you weigh 300 pounds. Is your first instinct, oh, I must have gained 100 pounds in a month? Or is your first instinct, there's something wrong with my instrument? This analytical instrument is uncalibrated. Um, so I think a lot of times what you might do is, as, as a scientist, you might go into your cabinet and be like, okay, I have a five-pound weight. I'm going to put this known quantity on my scale and see if it reads the same measurement I think it should read. I'm doing the exact same thing, but with a mass spectrometer and not a five-pound weight. Got it. We talked about... Uh, we went more in depth on how mass spec works in a previous episode where we talked with Dr. Devin Swepp. So if you if you listeners are interested in hearing more about how that works, you should check out that episode. So um, getting back to this, you had a, some of the work that you did as a grad student was involved on the side where you were trying to ident you were trying to evaluate how quantitative various peptides of the same protein were. And there was this figure that I remember seeing that kind of opened my eyes to, it explained exactly what you had been doing the entire time. Um, because I'd heard multiple of your talks, and I wasn't exactly sure what was going on. And I saw this one figure, and it was amazing. And it was in this matrix-matched calibration curve um, paper. Let me see if I can see which figure exactly it was. Oh, I'm pretty sure I know exactly the figure it was, because I too remember that day. <laughs> yes, it was figure one. Of course it was figure one. Classic. The idea is basically, 
Um, let me see if I can summarize it and then you can correct me. Uh, the idea is basically that as part of this procedure, you're chopping up all the proteins into their little subunits. And then you're evaluating the concentration of each one of the subunits. But not each one of them is going to be equivalently informative of the quantity of the original protein in the sample. And so the work that you were doing was saying, is there something about the composition of these peptides that we can use in order to identify the ones that are more related to the composition of the overall protein? Yep, you got it. And you had colors. And of course, the colors were the things that made it. Right, right. <laughs> the colors made the figure. Nope, you exactly got it. Um, that I think that is a fantastic summary. Okay, great. So you want to talk about the the broader area of the work that this was being done in? Yeah. So in the last, uh, geez, probably like five to seven-ish years, um, mass spectrometry, quantitative proteomics mass spectrometry uh, has really been able to scale up. Um, so before before this time, maybe like 10 years ago, um, quantitative mass spectrometry proteomics was really limited to maybe um, dozens to a hundred or 200 proteins per sample. That was the maximum number of things you could measure using a mass spectrometer and have those measurements be quantitative. That is not a lot, right? Um, there's, you know, like there's 20,000 genes in the human genome, which makes 20,000 canonical proteins. But when you add on to that, how proteins could have, for example, a single amino acid variant, that makes a different thing you're measuring in a mass spectrometer. If you add any post-translational modifications to that protein, that adds even more complexity to the sample. So being able to only measure like a dozen to a couple hundred proteins is not at all going to be comprehensive like genomics. Uh, but in the last five to seven-ish years, proteomics has really gone comprehensive. Um, we can measure everything that's in the sample now. Um, we are we're no longer being held back by the hardware of the instrument. Now we're really only being held back by the software we can use to analyze it. What was the um, breakthrough that allowed that to happen? I think just the instruments got fast enough. Um, so before the instruments were just, just a little bit too slow to do this. Um, and then just the, the instrument um, hardware uh, got, got advanced enough that we could go fast enough to make the measurements that we needed to make. Okay, so now that you have, now that you have these these approaches that are able to be more comprehensive on a larger scale, you're saying that there are software issues. Yeah, so so then we were able to detect all of the proteins, all of the peptides that were present in the sample, um, but there had long been this kind of rule of thumb that nobody had really exemplified. Even if you detect something, it doesn't mean you can quantify it. And this is because every single analytical instrument, including mass spectrometers, has what's called a limit of detection and a limit of quantitation. So what we had done, now we had these instruments that were fast enough uh, and we were able to detect all of these peptides, all of these proteins that were in a sample, we could detect them, so their limit of detection, but we didn't know if we were actually quantifying them, the limit of quantitation. So the work I was doing in my PhD was trying to ask the question, of all these proteins we can detect, how many of them can we actually quantify? And so the distinction is basically being able to say, I know that there is some amount here, but that the noise in the machine is larger than the signal that I'm seeing. 
Is that right? Yep, exactly. Every single instrument out there has has some amount of noise that's going on in the background at any time. Sometimes this is just because of the instrument. Usually it's because of whatever instrument you're using plus whatever you're trying to measure. Um, the more complicated a measurement is, the harder it is, the, the more complicated a sample is, the more complicated making a quantification from that sample will be. What does complicated mean in this sense? Yeah, so this is just kind of how many different things are in a sample. Um, if you put a single protein in water, very easy to measure that. There's not a lot of complexity in that sample. If you put that same protein in either a human cell lysate or human uh, like plasma or, or blood sample, now that has become a lot harder because there's just a lot of other things going on in that sample. That makes sense. So there's more stuff. It's more difficult to figure out what's going on. So the work that you were doing was trying to improve the software for quantitative measurements. What were the approaches that you ended up taking? Yeah, so I had originally been coming from um, a post-bac research experience where I was doing kind of that traditional quantitative proteomics approach, where you measure maybe a couple dozen or, or maybe like 100 or 200 proteins. Um, those approaches to do that requires that you purchase what's called a synthetic standard. So you take the peptide or protein sequence you want to measure, you tell a company, give me this, this peptide, make it for me, and, and add uh, a heavy isotope to it. So now because you've added a heavy isotope to it, the mass spectrometer can tell the difference, uh, and you can use those heavy isotopes to measure the original peptide in your sample. This works great if you're only doing a couple of these, these analytes that you want to measure, but it's about $1,000 to get one of these standards. So you can imagine if you're doing a couple dozen, maybe 100, you can afford to get $1,000 a pop <laughs> for each one of those different things. But that certainly wasn't going to scale now that we were going to measure every single protein uh, in the human proteome. So instead, uh, working with um, a professor at University of Washington, Andy Hoofnagel, um, there was this idea, well, what if instead of ordering a peptide for every single thing we want to measure, instead of ordering that, what if we take the human proteome and we dilute it into something else, something that's not the same human proteome? Um, and then you're getting a change in quantity across all of these uh, diluted samples, but you're also going to now measure that change in signal on your mass spectrometer. And really what we want to ask is, when does the change in signal uh, correspond to a change in quantity? If the change in signal matches the change in quantity, that's a good quantitative measurement. If it doesn't match, that is no longer a good quantitative measurement. Um, so we wanted to ask that for every single peptide, every single protein in the human proteome, but we didn't want to order, you know, 20,000 times uh, 100. We didn't want to order hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of synthetic peptides to do that. Got it. So you had a single reference proteome that you were using, and you were just diluting your sample into it. And as you saw the change in the thing that you thought you were interested in compared with the background, was it to, did you need the reference proteome in order to make the quantitative measurement or just to evaluate the noise of it? We were using it to make the measurement. So we were asking in whatever reference uh, sample we wanted to measure. And we did a couple. We did we did a yeast proteome. So we, we quantified everything in the yeast proteome. We did a, a human cerebrospinal fluid uh, 
proteome, quantitative proteome, um, and we actually did FFPE, formal and fixed paraffin uh, embedded tissues, um, that we also measured um, for for liver uh, biopsies. Um, but we wanted to know in each of those how many proteins can we detect, but further than that, how many proteins can we quantify? It seems like there are two major contributions. The first is not needing to use this expensive reference. And the second is the software tools in order to um, evaluate that afterwards. Exactly. So you've been talking about limit of detection and limit of quantification. Can you describe a little bit about how you would, um, like how do you determine what those values are? Yeah. So traditionally, these are determined in an extremely uh, kind of heuristic based manner. So you would measure a sample that doesn't have any of the protein in it, and you would calculate the coefficient of variation in that sample. So that approach um, is extremely straightforward. You just have to calculate a percent coefficient of variation. And then in each one of your diluted samples, you keep calculating the percent coefficient of variation until you reach some threshold, which you can basically decide as a researcher. Um, a lot of researchers use a 20% CV. Once you are at a concentration, a quantity that gives you a signal greater than 20% CV, you are no longer quantitative. You are detecting, but you are not quantifying. Um, so this heuristic, you can imagine, um, was kind of uh, mostly done in Excel sheets um, and and sometimes not even on Excel, but just literally on a paper with a calculator. Um, so maybe not the most robust or reproducible method. But, you know, like traditional science, like people walking around yeah. with like TI-83 calculators. <laughs> so the, the idea is basically that if you have a sample you care about and your reference proteome and you dilute it to be half your... If you, you dilute it at the reference proteome as twice the concentration, you would expect the signal from your thing to go down by half. And if it doesn't go exactly. down by half or anything else, then it's probably in the realm where noise is dominating versus true signal. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. That seems really clever, a really clever way of getting around the need for the type of standard. Every time I think about these types of standards, I always think about, um, I, I briefly did wet lab biology. And I had to make these uh, acrylamide gels. I don't know why they were trusting an undergrad to work with. It was like powdered acrylamide that we had to mix, which I only found out after leaving was like super carcinogenic. Um, they didn't, I'm sure they did tell me during the safety, but I don't, I didn't absorb that information. Hopefully I didn't absorb the carcinogenic you know, <laughs> properties either. Um, we're also dealing with ethidium bromide, which is another thing that's like super carcinogenic. Anyway, that's not what it reminded me of. What I was reminding is, is that uh, when you run these gels, you have to run a standard that tells you how long um, the things are at various pages in the, in the gel. And I don't think this is particularly expensive, but every time I see the idea that you would inject some sort of standard into uh, an experiment, it always just brings me back to that. Oh yeah, it's it's the exact same idea, right? Like you just have some known known that you're running alongside your regular samples and because you can compare to that known known, it gives you more confidence that what you're measuring is really what it is. It's the exact same thing in any kind of analytical 
measurement, right? Like they're they're at least used to uh, exist in Europe, like this master one kilogram item. Like it's a weight. It's just a one kilogram item. And every scale in the world has been calibrated through that one kilogram that exists in like this very fancy high security room. Um, you make copies of that one kilogram weight and you calibrate it to the master one kilogram. And then those copies go on to calibrate other copies. We're doing the exact same thing here by picking a reference material proteome. And that reference material proteome becomes that standard that we compare all of our other measurements to so that we can figure out things like the LOD, we can figure out the LOQ, um, and then we can, we can calibrate measurements to that. Yeah, I think that's a really good, it's a really good analogy that it's only through comparison with this reference that you're able to extract the true signal. Yeah. What even are numbers? We're just making up numbers anyway. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a computational field, so I just randomly hit my keyboard. And I'm like, I trained a neural network, you know, get numbers. <laughs> okay. So in this work, you develop this alternate way of doing quantitative mass spec. What were some ways that, what were some ways you were able to use that in order to, you know, find something? Yeah, so this is this has been really helpful um, for a couple different types of proteomics experiments. So, the first type of proteomics experiment um, that this this most directly helps um, is really like longitudinal, long-term projects, projects that are going to be you know hundreds, maybe even thousands of samples. Um, as you can imagine, the longer you're doing a project, the more batches are being introduced, and the more likely there's going to be some variance introduced. Uh, and there's, you know, of course, there's there's different ways to normalize or batch correct uh, quantitative measurements for this. Um, but this uh, uh, was really an interesting way to do that a little bit different using this this reference. So one of the ways um, we kind of benchmarked this kind of idea was there was a lab in Europe that I really greatly admired, um, Professor Rudy Abersold. He has since um, retired and he had this paper where he was doing the comprehensive yeast uh, quantitative proteome. Um, and I said, okay, so they made these measurements back in, I think it was 2015. This was obviously a different person, a different scientist preparing the samples. She prepared her yeast samples. She ran them on an instrument um, and got quantitative values off of it. I repeated her experiment. I grew the same type of yeast. I treated it the same way as closely as I could follow a method section. Um, I measured it on a different instrument. And of course, I'm a different person and I got my quantitative measurements. So you can imagine when I try to compare our two quantitative measurements, they're, they're correlated, but they're not the same at all, right? Um, and that makes sense because it was two different people, two different instruments, two different times. The yeast was mostly the same, but I'm sure that had differences too. We weren't on the same scale. We were trying to measure two things on a totally different scale. Our two scales were not calibrated. But if we use a reference material, so we grew a, a second strain of yeast, treated it in a, a specific set of conditions, and then we compare the quantitative experimental measurements against the reference measurements, now we're both on the same scale because we're going to express our quantitations relative to the reference material. When we do that, now they're correlated and they match. Wouldn't uh, she have to rerun the experiment? Nope, she didn't rerun anything. So she had 
two conditions of yeast. She had a control condition, for example, and she had an experimental condition. She actually just dumped a bunch of salt into her yeast. It was osmotic shock. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, I do the exact same thing. And if we just compare the osmotic shock yeast to one another, measurements are totally not on the same scale because we're two different people prepping the samples. We're on two different instruments um, at two different time points, two different continents. Um, there was nothing that was on the same scale there, um, except for the generality of doing mass spectrometry proteomics. Right, because you did this in the United States, your yeast probably like grabbed a cheeseburger on the way into lab. Probably, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, I can understand how you would be able to uh, you'd be able to run your experiment and calibrate it with respect to this reference proteome. But my understanding was that you would either need to use her sample or whatever and dilute it with respect to the reference proteome as well to compare measurements. Is that not right? Yep. We didn't even have to do that. It worked well enough just by having one sample that matched the conditions as closely as possible. Um, it would have been even better if she sent me one of her samples that I could run on my instrument as well. Um, that would work even better because then it's physically the exact same sample. Got it. Okay. I, I know that like one of the challenges that these large consortium like ENCODE faced was that they had ChIP-seq experiments and RNA-seq experiments, et cetera, from large numbers of people in lab labs that where the data didn't exactly match. And this is still an issue that they face to this day, where even though they've standardized their pipeline and the, for running experiments and for processing experiments subsequently, that it's still not perfect. It seems like proteomics is not yet at the phase where everything has even been standardized, but that this is a major step towards trying to unify the data. Oh yeah, yep. This is this is kind of the the end goal would be to enable those really large consortium projects. And there are a couple pretty large proteomics consortiums. There's um, a clinical proteomics one, CPTAC, uh, and they're doing a lot of of quantitative proteomics, but typically not at the scales that that I'm hoping we can do now. Um, I'm really hoping in the future now having this kind of idea that we can calibrate signal and we can determine like, oh, these peptides we detected, these proteins we detected are not even really quantitative, um, will help us do not only more features, measuring more things per sample, but also more samples. What is the scale that people can expect to run right now? Like, for example, if I had a, if I just had like a tissue sample and I, at bulk scale, wanted to quantify all the proteins that are here, is that something that's feasible? Yeah, you can you can get pretty dang close to every single protein that is in that sample. Um, it does get hard, not just for mass spectrometry, but any analytical instrument. Um, it gets hard the lower abundance you go, um, the smaller the quantity, the harder it is to get a signal from it. Um, and those ones, it's it's the same in in anything you do, whether it's sequencing or or whether it's proteomics. You have to start getting creative to get those really low signal, low quantity things in a sample. When you say uh, low abundance, do you mean within a sample? I mean, these, these are kind of correlated, but within a sample, a low abundance of a protein or within a population of cells, if a subpopulation is not well represented? Both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess those kind of mean the same thing. Although although most of proteomics is bulk, there is a, like a really growing community doing single cell proteomics. Um, that's really exciting and really cool. What are your thoughts on how viable single-cell proteomics is? I think right now the biggest 
challenge with single cell proteomics is that it's just technically very difficult. Um, it's hard to adopt those protocols because they either require extremely specialized equipment like microfabricated, uh, in-house microfabricated equipment, so not a lot of people have those resources, or it requires um, uh, just kind of like really technically challenging, with your hands, technically challenging um, protocols to generate the data. It seems like a, one of the challenges in single cell genomics is that we have a diploid genome, and so in theory, the highest count you can get for any position along the genome is two, because you can only, you know, you can only cut the genome twice. But proteomics doesn't necessarily have this restriction that you can have tons and tons of copies of proteins. Yeah, blessing and a curse that the dynamic range of proteomics is so large. Like even single cell attack seek um, has a smaller dynamic range. The transcriptome has a smaller dynamic range than the proteome does. Well, wouldn't single-cell ataxic only have a dynamic range of maximum two? Uh, ataxic would, yeah. Sorry, um, RNA-seq. Oh, single-cell yeah. RNA-seq, mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Right. Single-cell RNA-seq would st still have that limitation where it has maximum of two, but generally people aggregate over the entire gene body. Yeah. So that makes more sense. Yeah, but proteomics, yeah, you're absolutely right. And honestly, a lot of times the most interesting proteins to measure and quantify are the ones that are at the lowest abundance, right? They Like going back to those transcription factors, um, how many of them would we expect to see? Probably not too many. We don't need a lot of copies of a transcription factor for it to bind to, like you said, um, a couple a couple different locus positions in the, in the genome. Yeah. So something that I, I thought was kind of interesting to think about is that like what you're saying is that the abundance of a protein does not correspond to its essentiality or even its function. Do you think that there's a just large number of proteins that are floating around the cell doing nothing, that are just transcribed because of evolutionary history? Yeah, that's a very philosophical question. So I do... Like these are this is kind of getting into some of the questions that like the spatiotemporal proteomics field tries to think about. Um, I know even in some of my own work, I expected certain proteins to be present at a like dose dependence abundance, right? Like like given one condition, uh, like high glucose, um, if I give cells high sugar. And then I progressively ramp down the amount of sugar they have, I would maybe have intuitively thought, oh, well, the amount of protein to respond to that sugar would ramp correspondingly. Um, and that's not what I end up seeing at all. I end up seeing like more of a switch where at one specific concentration of sugar, I see a protein turn off. The abundance just drops to zero or vice versa. <laughs> I see a protein suddenly get trans transcribed and, and translated. Um, and now the abundance shoots up um, once the glucose goes below. So I, I think there are some proteins that are kind of like at a low level, hanging around waiting to respond to something. Um, but I don't think the cell really spends too much energy, you know, transcribing and translating a lot of these. Maybe the mRNA is there waiting, um, and it's just not translated until that protein's really needed. It's, an, it's a neat question to think about, though. That makes sense. Do you think that those responses are like stress and um, like starvation related? I mean, I think a, a lot of the proteome response seems to be not related to genotype, at least in my experience. A lot of times I think like, oh, if we delete a gene, 
that will surely create a huge response in the proteome. Um, and I, I have not observed that. <laughs> um, as long as it's not like a strictly essential gene, you can delete it. And the proteome seems to kind of just chug along totally unperturbed. Presumably the protein that it encodes is gone, right? Right, right. Okay. <laughs> um, besides, besides that, and maybe a couple like like uh, local effects um, from deleting that gene will change. But overall, the proteome doesn't react as strongly to a single gene deletion as it does to some environmental perturbation. Like if you switch uh, what carbon source a cell is working with, um, you know, um, like give it sugar or, or give it uh, glycerol, um, that gives it a huge change in the proteome. The, the proteome goes nuts responding to this, um, ramping down the things that it was using before to process the sugar and ramping up the things that it's going to use now um, to process glycerol. It's, it's really neat to think of how much the environment has an impact on your proteome. That is really interesting to think about. Hmm. Regarding the deleting of a gene, it seems like it sort of makes sense that, you know, people have every cell contains thousands of mutations. Every human has millions of mutations compared to each other. Most of these occur at regions that don't matter. But presumably, if you have some mutations that either knocks out or changes a protein's function, you don't want the entire cell to become unviable, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's this quote that I really like, though, despite liking it, I can't remember who said it. It's like nothing in biology makes sense except through the lens of evolution. Yeah, I I find evolutionary genetics and evolutionary proteomics to be absolutely fascinating. Um, even just getting back to like some of that intrinsically disordered protein, um, you would maybe expect, oh, if these like big floppy regions are not maybe strictly important, they must not be evolutionarily conserved, but they are. <laughs> Sometimes they are. And that does hint that even if the structure itself is not ordered, it's still important for the function of the protein. I think that that's, uh, that can be true, but it's also important to realize that one of the things that evolution implies is that basically the, the products of evolution aren't totally optimized. There can be mm. some points where... Um, after things are good enough, there's no real pressure for something to get even better. And sometimes it can be random events that at the time didn't affect viability, but due to changing environment later on became super important. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. So returning back to quantitative mass spec, that one of the things that I'm really interested in is this dynamic between gene expression, you know, like transcription and translation, that generally genomics people treat the problem as trying to predict gene expression as predicting the output from an RNA-seq assay. And because, you know, they don't like proteins or they don't believe in proteins or whatever, that they view... Gene products, you know, gene products. Exactly, gene products. <laughs> they, view the, they, they view the transcription product as the thing that they're trying to predict, and that's it. And I think in part that makes sense because there was not a lot of really good quantitative proteomic stuff in the past. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics between mRNA and proteins and how their abundances relate? Yeah, I totally agree. And this is something I think if you <laughs> if you want to start a fight at any proteomics conference, just tell them why do proteomics when you can measure transcriptomics. <laughs> it's a pretty good way to to start a uh, healthy debate. Um, yeah, I think there's there's I think even just between a gene 
being transcribed and then it being translated, there's just a lot of extra things going on there, right? Um, how many copies of a transcript are present is not even just a measure of how much mRNA is being produced. So like the, the quantity of mRNA transcript in a cell is not a static number. We treat it like a static number, but it's not because there's constantly more copies being synthesized and copies being degraded. Um, but we treat it like it's a static number. And I think it's the exact same thing when you move up to the protein level, to the protein, protein translation from that, that mRNA. It's not just going to be, oh, if there's many copies of an mRNA, there will be many copies of the protein. That's absolutely not like there's been so many studies now that have tried to do this. So many poor grad students think like, oh, it's this is it. I'm finally going to solve this problem. The, the transcription to translation, I'm going to solve it. Um, and I don't think anybody really ever will because it assumes too much about these two static numbers that the static number of transcript and the static number of protein is going to somehow play into each other. And it's just not the case because the mRNA is being synthesized and degraded. The protein is being synthesized and degraded. The protein and the mRNA could each be localized to interesting places in the cell um, that's going to affect the quantity you measure. The protein can be uh, uh, post-translationally modified in different ways. The transcript can be post-translationally modified. We know now RNA is, is post-translationally modified. So post-transcriptionally modified, I guess it is for, for an RNA. Um, so I think there's just, we, we like to think about these numbers, these little quantities being neat and tidy packages, um, but they're not. They're the result of dynamic processes that we're just capturing a snapshot at one time. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point that both of them are changing. Do you think that w within like a, a normal cell at a particular state in the cell cycle, that's a normal cell cycle, do you think that the rate of degradation and the rate of production of mRNA is static? Great question. I think if you in a perfect world could absolutely freeze frame every process that goes on in a cell <laughs> and exactly hold it steady, yes, that would be held steady. I just think there's too many things that a cell is doing, too many signals that it's picking up and processing and responding to um, for that to ever truly be the case. Like, I feel like it's just too busy inside a cell to ever get that snapshot. But like you said, that's why biology is hard. <laughs> yeah, right. That's why we need more and more um, sophisticated assays. It seems like, though, that with these single cell technologies that are coming out, that you should be able to start getting a sense for how production of mRNA, or how, how like how, how abundance of mRNA might change over the course of say the cell cycle, but I'm not sure how you would map that back into whether or not the differences in production or differences in degradation. So can you develop an assay for that? You definitely could, I think. I know in proteomics, we have approaches to measure synthesis and degradation of protein. Um, it's, again, using those stable isotopes. Um, so you just you take an amino acid and you stick heavy isotope atoms into it. And with a mass spectrometer, you can measure the heavy isotope. Um, so you can measure, uh, for example, you take a cell culture. Um, and you give it regular cell culture media. So that has a natural distribution, natural abundance of isotopes. You can purchase heavy isotope media and grow your cells in that. 
So you can imagine you're growing cells in one media, and then you switch in this heavy media now at this point onwards. The cells are using these heavy amino acids to synthesize new proteins. So every time you measure a protein with a heavy amino acid, you know it has been synthesized since that time point. Um, you can obviously trace this through multiple days, and you can measure how quickly that light protein is decreasing and the heavy protein is increasing. So now you have a measure of the degradation rate and the synthesis rate for a protein. Sorry, do you have the the rate at which the old protein is uh, degrading, or do you have just the proportion between the two? You have both, because you can measure the light protein and you can measure the heavy protein. Oh, okay. So you, you have the proportion, but you also have each independent measure as well. Got it, okay. Yep. That's really cool. Yeah, these approaches, um, protein turnover approaches, um, are, are really cool. And you can, there's been uh, work doing this in animals too. You can feed an animal heavy isotopes, and for the most part, they're okay with that. Um, and and you can measure in tissues in in animals um, how protein turnover is different. Uh, and you can imagine different organs and different tissues have different rates of protein turnover. Um, some uh, uh, cells never uh, create new protein. That's it. <laughs> um, so like a lot of the proteins in your eye, like you're born with those and you will die with the same <laughs> proteins you were born with. Um, so you can imagine as those proteins are being degraded, you're not synthesizing anything new. Um, so you're accumulating damaged proteins because the protein turnover is nothing. Sorry, wait, so you're saying that the the same composition of amino acids or the exact same molecules are the same? I, the crystallines in your eye, I think, are the exact same molecules from when you're born to when you die. Oh, that sucks. You like <laughs> Maybe some, some gene therapies here can, can get us new proteins in our eyes. But um, yeah, that, that's part of the reason that uh, as you grow older, you, like, you have certain eye problems um, that are treatable. So don't stress. <laughs> mm. There are other things I'm stressing about more than growing old. Yeah, and you can imagine like like organs. Um, what is it like your liver? Um, have really great turnover. Um, your your whole liver can like what like regenerate itself basically. Um, you can get chunks of your liver taken out. Um, but those cells are really good at synthesizing new protein, um, and degrading the old protein really fast. Um, so these approaches are really interesting, and I think part of the reason these approaches are not new, these protein turnover methods, um, they're they're fairly old. I mean, a, like a decade or two. Um. So they're pretty well established, but I think there's been kind of a renaissance in going back to these spatiotemporal techniques because now we can truly quantify comprehensive proteomes. So like you had mentioned, measuring in these protein turnover experiments, you have to measure two things very well. <laughs> not just one thing, not just the one protein, but both types of protein, the heavy and the light protein. Um, so now you can imagine uh, you need good quantities for two things, twice as many things need to be measured well. Presumably though, that to get a, a good sense for all the dynamics involved from the DNA level, you'd also want a type of RNA turnover one where you do like heavy and light, I don't know, year or so or something? Yeah, something like that. I don't know how you would quantify the heavy and light in a sequencer, though. I don't know if a sequencer would care if it's heavy or light. You can just do, you know, I'm sorry, you can just do quantitative PCR. It has quantitative in the name, right? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, but th those are really interesting thoughts that I think maybe we should leave on that there are all these interesting dynamics going on in the cell that, you know, I've long held that proteins aren't real, but through conversations with people like Lindsay, 
you know, I'm being more and more convinced that potentially they exist. There might be gene products that can't be measured <laughs> on a sequencer yet. <laughs> yes, gene products. That way I don't have to use the word. Right, right. Do you have anything else you'd like to say before we end? No, I just, I think, you know, proteomics is a field, I think, especially right now, our data is getting bigger and there's a real lack of computational proteomicists. Um, it's it's a tricky field to get into because the measurements and the data are so different from traditional omics data. Um, but there is just huge opportunity here for bioinformatics to really take off. Because right now, a lot of computational proteomicists are just trying to steal whatever they can from like old school microarray algorithms. So there's just huge opportunity here. And the, the field is only going to keep growing, I think. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. And I hope you all enjoyed listening. Mm -hmm.